Hello and welcome back to the Calvary Tabernacle Young Adults Podcast. We're so glad you're listening, and we hope you continue to do so. This is the fourth part of our series, which is titled Unplug. This episode features Brother Andrew Herbst, who highlights some of the common attacks on the Bible and the opportunity we all have to stand up for the Word of God. Please enjoy. So we are, I'm, I'm stealing this title from a book that Brother Kilman has talked about a lot. And so kind of my title, if I can turn on my clicker, is Worldviews in Conflict. So we're talking about unplugging from culture, unplugging from the ideas of culture, from the college culture. But some, so I just, I think this title is appropriate because it's, it's the worldview of the church, of the Bible against the um, worldview of the world, right, of the spirit of the age. And so these are the things that we're coming against in this series, and I really enjoyed um, hearing the different lessons and the testimonies and the, the work that God is doing. So the biblical worldview clashing with the spirit of our age. And, I, and Brother Pedigo was preaching or speaking, I think, just the other day, and he quoted this scripture, and this was, and I thought, okay, that's going to be my text for tonight, because Psalm 119.89 is just perfect. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Not going anywhere. For thousands of years, the Bible has been attacked and, and preached against and all this stuff, but it has not failed once. I love what Brother Mooney said a, a while ago, and you, know, you just hear that, and you're like, oh yeah. He said, you know, one way that we know the Bible is true is because the Bible works. And that always has just stuck with me. So whether you're, you're talking about theology or the history, or the science, or something practical about relationships. The Bible works in every area that it teaches. Amen. So, the word is settled. So, one thing that we are really pointing to and looking at in this college series, something that is really important is this idea that intellectuals are eventually going to be leading what society is thinking about. So if we can think about or look at it this way, we have the intellectuals there in the universities and the universities, as Brother Brzezinski taught the first lesson, that's what teaches culture what to think is in the universities. So if I can give you like a really extreme example of this, it would be uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau or I could put Voltaire up there. These were philosophers and uh, a little bit after their, their ideas, they were being um, published everywhere. People were talking about them in the coffee shops. They were called the salons, right, in France. And they were so popular, and after they died, neither of them saw what their ideas brought into France. And their ideas were wrapped up in the French Revolution. And the French Revolution was a direct cause because of what the philosophers were teaching in the previous generation. So there was this great little story, I think, in that, uh, in that book, Brother Kilman, the worldview was in conflict about a, uh, in, uh, Thomas Carlyle was in Scotland, I believe, maybe not, but he was at a dinner party and he kept talking about books and ideas, and the host was like, oh, ideas, Mr. Carlyle, ideas, all you're talking about is ideas. And uh, Mr. Carlyle said, there was once a man called Rousseau who wrote a book containing nothing but ideas. The second edition was bound in the skins of those who laughed at the first, indicating that it was 
the people that laughed at him were the ones that died in the French Revolution. So again, yes, this is an extreme example, I know. But my point is, is that the ideas that our society is holding is going to make its way among us. Like, it's not something like, okay, only the smart people are talking about that. It's going to make its way here. And Brother Kevin, if we do a study throughout history, it's, and Brother Kilman, this is contemporary theology. I feel like I'm just quoting you. But <laughs> this stuff is just, and I feel like it's so alive to me because I've seen this. I've been out of college for a couple of years, but I saw this in the colleges that I went to, not IBC, of course, but the, my, the secular schools. Because when, when you have these, these secular ideas and these teachers, it's only going to be a couple years later before the church is going to embrace those things as well. And of course, when I say the church, I'm talking about Christianity in, in a very, very general sense. So people that are teaching the Bible are eventually going to pick up, and we do have people talking about what he's talking about. So ideas do matter, and so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. One man, another guy that I seem to quote all the time, is Dr. John Wark Montgomery. And Dr. Montgomery has three PhDs, an additional honorary PhD, and Brother Zach, like 11 other degrees that I don't remember what they are. So he's kind of smart. He is a, he's literally a world lawyer, like he is in Strasbourg, France, it, which is the capital of Europe. He has won four cases at the, uh, I think the European Council, European, European Parliament is there. And so he's, he's just a, a really great intellectual giant. He, he has handwritten letters that he wrote to C.S. Lewis, all this stuff. Uh, he was on these committees, so... Um, Several decades ago, when seminaries were going through this liberal shift and people started saying, well, Adam, of course, Adam was not the, the first man. And they were saying, well, of course, Isaiah could not have written that book with all that prophecy stuff. And he was a part of these committees, Brother Chris, that would go around and they would like, uh, I don't know if interrogate is the right word, it might be, but they would like question these professors and if they quote unquote failed the test, they would be kicked out of the seminary. So he is someone that has fought for truth and in inerrancy, the purity of the word of God, inerrancy. He has fought for that for a very long time. And I love this quote that he has in, in a great book called The Suicide of Christian Theology. This is, this is more of a paraphrase, excuse me. But he says that there's a crisis in every generation. And the, the crisis right now is what to do with the Bible. And, and this is something that I just feel so strongly about because it, when you look through history, and we're not, I'm not going to go through every one, of course, but we see these attacks against the Bible to where, you know, it was the, the attack over the English. Do we have a Bible in English? And, and now we're dealing with translation issues. And even a step further than that is, do we even have a Bible at all? So it's, it's this, this slide that's going to keep progressing until we don't have anything to hold that we can actually call the Bible. So he is saying... What are we going to do, or asking, what are we going to do with this thing we call the Bible? The idea of our culture is to ignore the Bible. It's the, it's the way, you know, we can concoct human uh, solutions for spiritual problems. And Brother Kilman, your lesson about, you've talked about how, you know, reconciliation, we, we try to find things outside of God, and, and that's never going to be true reconciliation, but we try to find these things, and that's, that's what that deviation is. That's where that darkness comes in. And, and so people are trying to ignore the Bible. When I was in uh, one of my MSU classes, Minnesota State, I thought I was just 
blown away by this, and it was just kind of a passing comment. One of my classmates said she was in an ethics class, and she was just so happy because she learned in this ethics class uh, all these things, and now she's a vegetarian. In a college ethics class, that's the best thing that you could come up with. You're not, you're not talking about real issues. You know, we're dealing with all this abortion stuff, and I'm not going to go down there, but all this homosexual stuff. And, and I was talking to somebody about this the other day, that I remember when I was in my psych, one of my psychology classes, my professor started showing videos of three-year-olds that wanted to be a different gender. And I remember, I mean, that was in 2015, somewhere around there, the spring, spring of 2015, I believe. And I remember thinking that this is the next thing. This, this homosexual thing was fought for so long. And I was in a class, my first college I went to before IBC, I was in a class where one of my friends said he did not agree with homosexuality, he thought it went against nature, and the professor did not say anything. He got cussed out by the lesbian that was there that didn't like that comment very much. But the professor just kind of laughed and was like, oh, you know, whatever. But I don't think that that student could do that in a, in a university today. And now it's gotten to the point where little kids are being encouraged to be whatever they want to be. They are being taught that if you want to be a different gender or whatever, I mean, how, how crazy is that? A three-year-old, I, didn't, I don't even remember anything when I was three, much less do I want to be a girl? You know, like that stuff, that's just what in the world is going on in our culture that we are allowing that type of mentality to enter into our young kids. In, in April of last year, GQ had a, a list of, uh, what was it, uh, 21 books you don't have to read. And the Bible came in at a whopping 12. Ignore the Bible, right? That's, that's all you need to do. Okay? We have just close to 80% of, of people that are going to college are leaving with no faith. And uh, a while ago, I was listening to a, uh, a Lutheran campus pastor, and he said he was expressing how afraid he was to the interviewer because he was saying how, you know, we used to be really worried about the seniors at college. I'm more worried about the freshmen now because this number where 80% are, are losing their faith by the time they leave college, this, this Lutheran uh, minister was saying that the freshmen are coming in with, with hardly any faith because of what's going on in the high schools. And so what I'm trying to get us to understand today is that, yes, we're talking about the college culture, but it's not just the college culture. It's everything that we're dealing with. And I'm going to share some attacks that we're dealing with maybe in the workplace, where we could be even dealing with some of these in our own movement. And some of these things we have to keep an eye out for, because if we're not careful, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with this Bible. Again, to quote uh, Dr. Montgomery, he is also a, a Lutheran minister. He was saying, and this is just, this cracks me up, because he's obviously not anti-education. I mean, the dude has degrees upon degrees. And he was saying in uh, a lecture how there have been studies done that show that younger ministers are more likely not to believe in this. And the older ministers are more likely to believe in the Bible. And then he kind of stops, and he's like, so why is that? And then he, he starts ridiculing the seminaries. He starts saying how because these horrible seminaries are teaching liberal theology to the younger generation so that when they're coming up and they're taking pulpits, 
they're starting to preach that this is not exactly the word of God. And I didn't have this in my notes right now, but just let me share this really quick with you. I was listening to a Frank Turek podcast, and he was interviewing, I can't even remember her name now, I shouldn't have even brought this up, but if, if any of you remember the, the uh, Zoe girl, that band, that Christian band from a couple years ago, she was one of the singers. But she's now like in seminary, and she's like doing apologetics and all this cool stuff. But she was talking about how they went to this new church, and this, this pastor, like a non-denominational kind of thing, if I remember right, and she, her and her husband and their kids, they loved the pastor. They thought he was just amazing. She said he always had these great insights into scripture. He was a great preacher. A couple months in, he, he asked if they would want to be a part of like a small group kind of Bible study. And she thought that'd be so cool because, you know, I grew up in church, but I've never had a chance to be kind of educated and, you know, really dig down in, you know, with somebody that really knows the scripture. So she was so excited and she looked up to this pastor so very much. Well, they got there, and guess what he started to admit to this small group? He's agnostic. He doesn't even believe that Jesus is actually the God of the Bible. He, didn't, he said, we can't really know exactly who God is. I just preach this stuff because this is probably the, the best thing to preach. And there's more to the story, but if this is what they're doing in the denominal world, who's going to preach truth? Who's going to stand up for what is right? Who is going to say that, listen, we have a Bible. We have something to stand on. We have a foundation. We can not only preach this and believe it, but this is, this is what, did, what did Peter say? Where else are we going to go for eternal life? Your words are, this is the light of the world. So apologetics, right? So apologetics is from 1 Peter 3 where this is a reasoned defense for what we believe in. We're giving a, a reason for the hope that lies within us. And I love how one apologist says it. Uh, we're defending our faith without an attitude of defense <laughs> because this is a, uh, you know, we should not be defensive or, you know, not on, we shouldn't be backpedaling because Martin Luther said, you know, just let the Bible out. It's like a lion. So just, just let the word out. So apologetics, we're trying to uh, bridge the gap here. This is what apologetics is. It is, we have to know what our theology is. We have to know what we believe. And on the other side of that, we also have to know what culture is saying. Because how are we going to speak to something that we don't know? How are we going to be able to reach this world if we don't know what is attacking the world? So through our apologetics, through our defenses, through our hope and our faith, we are going to be the bridge. We are going to stand in the gap for people that maybe they just don't know. Maybe they're just trapped in darkness, and maybe they just don't know truth, and you are the one that God has set in their pathway to show them what truth is. And Brother Kilman, again, as you have said, plant seeds of doubt in what they believe. Okay, so can I trust my Bible? A mythical Bible means that obedience is optional. But a verified Bible means we have a Lord. That means we should obey, right? So if the Bible is true, that means Jesus is truly God. He's the one that died for us. We owe him our allegiance. And that, excuse me, that is what we need to put our trust in is that the Bible. So what's, what's the scripture, Brother Kilman, where it's the, in Psalms where it says that thy word, O Lord, is exalted above thy name because it's the word that reveals the name. So this is something that we, I just keep coming back to it. We have an obligation to deal with this issue. 
we have an obligation to, to not just stand on the sidelines. We have an obligation to kind of get our hands in the dirt, so to speak, and start looking at how can we, how can we be a witness for God in this world. And, of course, I believe that we're doing that. That's why we're doing this series. So, again, attacks on the Bible do not just stay in the universities. I have a terrible book here to share with you. Um, I apologize. I was supposed to put those up one at a time. So one of my classes at MSU was uh, the it was the Foundations of Monotheism, and uh, this was the textbook for the class. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool cool title, the Bible Unearthed. Oh, archaeology's new vision of ancient Israel and the origin of its sacred texts with Israel Finkelstein. Love that name. So I thought this might be this might be kind of interesting, and then. Um, we started going through the introduction, Brother Kilman, and thankfully, because of IBC, I thought, oh, my goodness, like they're going to complete this in three words. Uh, and, and they did. So <laughs> this, this guy here is the leading professor at the Tel Aviv uh, University in Israel. And he, he's not a lightweight in what we would probably say the liberal arena. He's very popular. Uh, extremely popular. He wrote this book. This book is, oh, I think, he, I can't remember, like 2007 or something. So I'm going to keep keep that in mind when I talk to you about some of these things because either they are just outright lying in this book or they are turning a blind eye to things that have been found well before 2007. So we can talk about that in a little bit. But this class was so interesting because, you know, it. anyways, okay. He says in like in the very first page of the introduction, he, he's talking about the Old, this is a book mainly about the Old Testament. And he starts talking about how the Old Testament is a brilliant product of human imagination. And that actually is a direct quote. So I didn't paraphrase that. Let me make him sound bad. This is actually a direct quote. So what is the Old Testament? Well, it's basically mythology. He says that it's an epic saga, uh, excuse me, saga, Woven together. So they just took all these stories, you know, from like, they took some history, they took like maybe some memoirs and some, uh, some folk tales and lots of propaganda, let me tell you. And they made this great uh, ancient Lord of the Rings type thing. Okay, that's, that's, what, they're, that's what the Old Testament is. He, he calls it just that it was conceived. This is something that was... was all done by humanity. He's leaving no room at all for God to move on holy men of old. No room at all. And the, the part that gets me so much, Brother Zach, is that he pretty much, and I put this here because it just drives me nuts, that pretty much the entire Old Testament is just propaganda. The only reason the Old Testament was created was so that King Josiah, everybody remember the eight-year-old king that got a little bit older and cleaned out the temple, and was a good king. So the, the last good king of Judah. So this guy and many others, they would say that all of the Old Testament was propaganda so that Josiah could rule his kingdom better, so that Josiah could control his kingdom. It's all propaganda. It's all about control. It has nothing to do with God. There's no history. It's mainly myth. So they would say, and, and he says in here, that you know, you've got <clears throat> Abraham is, is most definitely a myth. He talks about how, you know, there's all kinds of terrible, horrible inaccuracies in Genesis. And uh, I think I talk about this in, in another slide, so I don't want to go too far. 
Brother Kilman, he says that it, it is in this era of Josiah that modern monotheism is born. So he says that, sure, there were some, some people that were worshiping one God, like in little areas, but it was never an exclusive only that God in that one place. And so it's Josiah. Now, most people hate timelines, but this is why timelines are important. So Josiah is living in the 600s. Moses is living in the 1400s B.C. And so you count backwards. So that's a lot of time in between there. And what this guy is saying and what we're going to get to is that Moses did not write those books. It was all concocted by brilliant human imagination. So let's keep going. So if you actually believe in what the Bible and what it says, this is probably what you would say. The Bible is rooted in history and has been accurately transmitted. Now what that means is that anything that you look at in here can be verified by history. Like it took place, we know of people that, that lived and we have archaeology or maybe even books or anything about these people. But the transmitted thing is also really important too because we also have to believe that God can protect his word. That this is something that, you know, we've got all those missing books of the Bible or what about all those gospels, you know? So can God protect his word or not? That's a big question. Is this what we have? Or maybe we should be reading a different translation. Maybe we should, you know, Brother Kellen, maybe we didn't have the Bible until 1881 when those two crazy dudes came out with their own version. So, is God powerful enough to keep his word? So, uh, I should have asked you before I showed you, but does anybody want to take a guess? What is the most disputed part of the Bible? Genesis 1 through 11. Very good, Brother Cole. So, the book of Genesis is, the if, if there's any atheist attacks or critic, critic, excuse me, attacks, most of them are going to be centered at these chapters right here. Um, another fun one you can look at, the book of Daniel. A lot of people don't like Daniel. A lot of people don't like Isaiah. But why would this portion of Scripture be attacked so much? Because it deals with creation. It deals with where we came from. It deals with the first people. It deals with the flood. It deals with how people got to where they are. And it deals with the sin issue. So let's just go through a couple things here that I find very fascinating. I hope you do too. So... Um, Brother Chris, I know you've seen this before, so you can't say anything. So I just want you to check this picture out. This is from an ancient Canaanite little seal, okay, little clay, little tablet thing. So I just want you to take a look at that and see what you can see. So the name of this is the Temptation Seal. There's actually more than one of these. There's another one I didn't put up. There's two of them. And as you can see, there is a tree. There is, according to uh, scholars' analysis, there's some fruit hanging. There's a man, and there is a woman, and there is a snake. And this is a seal that is uh, dating back to about 2000 B.C., so approximately 4,000 years ago. And a lot of people think this is the Canaanite version of the fall. Or, or the ancient, maybe even uh, Babylonian version of the fall, excuse me. But you have little echoes in the ancient world of what actually happened. 
And we're going to look at uh, a couple more of these here. So in, in the second one I didn't show you, it actually shows a, a man and a woman. They're like cowering in shame. And again, you see like a serpent behind them as well. That one's even smaller. That one's really tiny. There is the uh, Mesopotamian Adapa and Iridu, which looks a lot like Adam and the Garden of Eden. That's interesting. What about the deluge? What about the flood? So in every continent, of course, except for Antarctica, you have over, and I put over because I've heard different numbers. I've heard all the way up to maybe around 300. I've heard 270. Brother Kilwin, you probably can help us with this later. But for sure, over 250 flood stories all around the world. And when, I, when I'm telling my seventh graders about this, I say, well, you know, so the flood, this is approximately, you know, in, in this area is where, you know, Noah would have been. But so they found flood stories there. And then I say they found them there. They found them there. And then eventually I just go all over because there are flood stories even where there are no floods today. They have found ancient flood stories. And now these flood stories range from to being almost exactly like Genesis, to maybe there, there are just a lot of similarities, but not exact. But most of, them, they, most of them involve a god or group of gods being very angry at humanity, so they send a flood, so the flood. And then you have uh, usually one man and his family being in high favor with these gods or God, and he, he saves humanity. And usually there are animals involved, and pretty much always there's some kind of boat involved. And there's more things that we could go through. There are literal studies on this, and they, they show like, oh, this one in Africa is like 86% like Genesis and all that. So it's just very fascinating that we see echoes, and I wouldn't even say this is an echo. I would say we could see some screaming things from history that show that, you know, this probably knows what it's talking about. What about this one? There is an Assyrian account that looks a lot like the Tower of Babel. So there's this really angry God, and he comes down from heaven. He comes down. <clears throat> kind of sounds familiar. And he, he's gets, he gets mad at, like, all these, all these people, and he, he takes away their language, and he confounds all their language. And then in a passing note, and it says that he stops the building of their great tower. <clears throat> that kind of sounds familiar, too. And you can't really see it too well, but why is it that the towers all around the world look very, very similar, almost identical? Maybe they learned it from a common ancestor or something. So someone might say this, okay, okay. So we, you just shared a bunch of myths that look like Bible stories and very old uh, things too. Oh, it's 8.30, I have so much more to do. Okay. So why, why aren't... <laughs> Why aren't why aren't why isn't why why aren't these just a bunch of myths too? Well, again, you can look at ancient Near Eastern scholars. Ancient Near East just means you know people that study like Assyria and Babylon and Mesopotamia and all that stuff. You can look at these scholars, and they will tell you that ancient myths don't really care about history very much. Most of them care about lifting up the god of a particular city that they're trying to bring in the worship to. So. For instance, there's an account, the Enuma Elish, I think is how you pronounce it. And this is, people say, oh, that's what Genesis is based off of. That's, that's about the god Marduk in, in Babylon. And that has, you know, Genesis is just an offshoot of that. The Bible is false. But until you really start reading it, and the Enuma Elish has, doesn't really care about history, it's trying to bring in this new god and, and kind of rearrange the religion a little bit. 
And something very interesting is that myths only become more mythological. They only get more complex as they go. Myths do not just turn around and become more simple and become more historical. The Bible is written as a historical document, and they, they prove this and show this throughout their studies. The Bible is the simplest form of a creation account. There's no myth in it. Okay, so what about the Exodus? This is another thing in this book. So they, you know, they say, well, of course, the Exodus didn't happen. There's no evidence for the Exodus. There's, there's no proof. You silly Christians, why do you believe in the Exodus? There, you know, Egypt is, is somewhere, if there was millions of people, or even maybe even hundreds of thousands of people, that you should be able to find something, and people laugh at you and call you mean names, and you can just look at them and, and say, well, there actually is some things that look a lot like the Exodus. So, for instance, does anybody remember the plagues? Anybody ever read uh, Exodus 7 all the way through and read through all the plagues and stuff? Well, there, there was a, a, so Moses supposedly, according to the Bible, right, would say, uh, excuse me, that he lived in around the 1400s, 1,400 years before Jesus. That's when he lived. And there was a priest, Ayupuer or something like that. I don't really know how to pronounce Egyptian names very well. But he lived just 200 years later. Or, or at least, uh, excuse me, this document is from 200 years later. So usually when you have something like that, uh, it comes from something earlier. So anyway, but <clears throat> this document is awesome because he starts talking about all of these terrible things happening in Egypt, and it kind of sounds like the plagues. Let's see if this rings a bell to anyone. He starts talking about how the river is blood and men are thirsty everywhere. He talks about how crops are being destroyed and there's fire destruction and hail. And he talks about how animals are dying all over Egypt. He says men and children are dying. He talks about pestilence. He talks about a very dark darkness being all over the land. He talks about great groaning. I'm pretty sure I read somewhere about how there was a great groaning all over Egypt one particular night. And this one is, is great. He says that slaves are leaving wearing gold around their necks. There's also these ancient cities that they're finding. So if you can see this, there's this city, but there's a city that they have found actually underneath that one. And they've come to the conclusion that it looks like Semites or Hebrew-type people were living there. And it's really fascinating. And one, and, and this is just kind of maybe, you know, for... Um, you to look up, but they, uh, Avaris here, this city, they think that comes from an offshoot of the Egyptian name of Joseph. Kind of interesting. So supposedly there are also uh, silos, grain silos, you know, because Joseph kind of built a lot of stuff to store food in, and people still say like, yeah, you can go see his silos, it's over here. You go over to Egypt. Brother Waldron was talking about that last time he was here. You can uh, go through and see areas where Temples were being built, but the workers just kind of randomly got up and left. Uh, something that, that I found kind of by accident, and, and this is just throwing this out there. I, I don't exactly know uh, the accuracy of this, so maybe I shouldn't be sharing it, but it's just interesting. So I'm reading about um, uh, Josephus and how he's this uh, very uh, old Jewish scholar, 
And he starts talking about in Egypt how there was this, this slave uprising. And there was a, a prince, kind of a priest-like figure in Egypt, and he led this revolt. After the revolt from Pharaoh, he leaves and changes his name to Moses. Now, this story is fascinating because Josephus is writing it, but he's actually quoting. So, Mosaic authorship, who wrote the Pentateuch, or the Torah, is the first five books of the Bible. And, again, I'm, I'm kind of attacking this, and, and these are some, some main ideas still in our culture today. And I'm going to try to go through this pretty quickly. So, just in the Pentateuch itself, and these are just a few of a lot, where the Bible itself says that Moses wrote down what God told him to write. So, according to the Bible, Moses is the author. But even in you know, the, the middle part of the Old Testament, you have people all over saying, Moses, the law of Moses, Moses did this, Moses did that, Moses told us, as Moses said. So that's kind of a big deal, but one that really gets me is that Jesus kind of believed it too. So if you don't believe that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, then you, my friend, have a problem with Jesus. So I'm just going to leave that there for the sake of time. But um, there's lots of studies done with the internal evidence of in the Pentateuch, the person that wrote it was not from Israel. So if you're trying to say that Josiah wrote it in his time period, Someone from Israel did not, did not write it. There's more Egyptian words in the Pentateuch than anywhere else in the Bible. So, and I'm going to skip this just for sake of time here. Okay, so this is something that I was taught at MSU, and unfortunately this is making its way into conservative circles. I'll just say it like that. So redaction criticism, this is what redaction criticism is, and this is a very shortened kind of idea. And, and please, I want this to be helpful, because if we let the intellectuals just run and say this is what we should believe without us being informed on stuff, things might get a little, a little ugly. So we need to be educated on what people are teaching, we need to know what the Bible says. Remember that culture and theology bridge. We need to be able to know what we're talking about. So this redaction criticism says that early Bible stories were written, but over time there was like an editor or they call him a redactor. And they kind of put everything together into a final product. So Moses did not write the Pentateuch. It was a group of people. Brother Kilman, some people say it was one. Some people say it was a whole bunch. Some people say it was a whole school. Nobody really knows, but what they do know is that Moses did not write the Pentateuch. So um, this is an extremely destructive idea because it tears down everything about the Bible. And this is what is so sad is that their presuppositions, their ideas about the Bible is leading them to this interpretation. So they're starting from a point that says the Bible's not the word of God, so how can I make it not the word of God? That's what's going on. So just really quick, this one's a little bit outdated, but I was still taught this. This type of redaction criticism is called the documentary hypothesis, and I'm actually going to skip over this a little bit because if the Bible says and if Jesus says that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, then I think he wrote the Pentateuch. And there's, there's other things um, we could talk about later. I'm going to skip to... Um, this last one here, and I'm only going to say this once because this is a brutal word to try to say. 
but the Deuteronomistic historian, is this idea, and I'm just going to call it the redaction criticism from now on, this idea that from Deuteronomy to the book of 2 Kings, you have this common language that is shared throughout all of these books. And what's interesting is that what is spoken about in Deuteronomy, the blessings and the curses, all of these things come true. Throughout Joshua, the kings, all these things that were talked about in Deuteronomy come to pass. So if you're a Bible believer, you would say, well, it was kind of like God told Moses and it was a prophetic book and and it came to pass because God said, if you are in covenant, you keep the law, I will dwell with you, you shall be my people, I shall be your God, and and if you disobey me, I'm going to send all these things on you to get you to come back to me, otherwise I'm going to send you to a foreign land. And so this, if that's, that's what we would say as Bible believers, but there are people today that are teaching this in conservative areas, and this is completely tearing down, because this is what happened, that, that one that said that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, that was so successful that another group of people came up and said, well, maybe that these books from Deuteronomy to 2 Kings, maybe Moses did not write this, but maybe that other stuff came later as well. Maybe they pieced all that stuff together. Maybe that was written in Josiah's time. Maybe that was written hundreds of years later. Maybe, maybe this is not prophetic. Maybe this was all done for propaganda. Why? Because Josiah wanted everyone to come to Jerusalem. So this is a very, very destructive idea. So how could someone know that the, the people of Judah would go into exile? Well, obviously, someone that was living at that time period. That's what they would say. I would say, God, that was a promise. If you keep covenant, you'll be with me. But if you don't, I'm gonna, you're going to leave my presence. So, again, this is a very destructive idea. So let's look at why, why is this not something we as apostolics should believe in. And I, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up here. The denial of Moses and the prophets. The New Testament says the prophets said this. Or they quote things from these books and they call them the prophets. They didn't call them the redactors. They didn't call them the editors. They didn't call them this, the college wrote this or said this. This is something because this, this idea, the denial of Moses and the prophets, denies that holy men of old wrote as they are moved on by the Holy Spirit. This denies that, that all scripture is given by, inter, uh, by inspiration from God. This denies that aspect. And what is funny to me, Brother Kilman, is that Deuteronomy language is found in prior books. You see the same type, I mean, so even just the name of this, the Deuteronomistic historian, I can say it in my head, but when I start to say it, I can't. But it's, it's found in Leviticus, it's found in Exodus, and I thought about this sitting back there, I was thinking of things. You see this in Daniel, you see things about, so when, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, and he says, if my people, which are called by my name, that's the Chronicles version of what happens in 1 Kings 8. He says, God, if, if we trespass against you, and you exile us to a faraway land, if we turn our eyes towards your temple, bring us back. And what do you see throughout the rest of the Bible? You see these things, not just in Kings, but you see them in the prophets too. Why do you think Daniel, when he prayed three times a day, turned his eyes toward the temple? 
because there was a promise involved. So this is something that tears down what... So these redaction critics, they say, well, you know, we see all these differences and similarities, and therefore it couldn't have been the same person that wrote it. But then when the Bible, so that's called internal evidence. When other internal evidence says that Moses wrote it or the prophets wrote it, they say, well, we don't, we don't agree with that. We only believe in our internal evidence. But the great thing about this, Brother Zach, is that there's no evidence for this at all. They have never, ever found a separate source. They have never found an editor. They have never found a college or a school of editor, editors. They have never found anything that supports this idea. And when my teacher at MSU was teaching this, he would never say the name documentary hypothesis or theory or whatever. So I had to raise my hand. And I said, now, what is the name of this? And she's like, ah, oh, she kind of beat around. I said, isn't this called the documentary hypothesis? She's like, oh, yeah, that's what it's called. So I said, it's not even up to theory status. It's only a hypothesis. She's like, and she'd been teaching on this for a while. And it was just funny because then she said, oh, yeah, we can't prove any of this. Now, here, here's what is so terrifying and sad to me is that when I'm walking out, I'm hearing my classmates say, I never learned this in Sunday school. There's kind of a reason for that because it's not true. But if these are the lies that are being pumped into our culture, but again, not just our culture, the denominal world, and maybe even in our own movement, what are we going to do with this type of thing? And I, and I, have, I have more, but I'm, I'm going to skip right to the end. You never know who you can reach by just standing on the word of God. The music can come after. So I just, I had so much fun at MSU. I was able to witness to, I went to, I was, I was not involved in any of the athletic programs, but I went to this like athletic, like Bible study group they had every Wednesday after my church. I'd jet over there and hang out. And, and I wasn't, and I wasn't trying to show off or do anything, but when they would say, okay, let's go to this book in our Bible study, I would just go there. And I would just wait, you know, just kind of wait for the person to start. And after a while, people were like, man, you really suck. And I'm like, you know, I wasn't in my head, I'm like, I'm not trying to be. You know, I'm just, I'm just doing it. But they were just impressed that I knew the books of the Bible. And I had a, I had a classmate. Her name was Lynn. And I still pray for Lynn. She was an, an atheist, lesbian, feminist. And she had something to say about anything. And she was actually a, a really nice person when you would just talk to her, like, hey, how's it going? But in class, she hated religion, not just Christianity. But and remember I said, you just, you got to know what you believe. You got to be able to plant those little seeds of doubt every once in a while because she had something to say all the time. And one time she got on this little rant about how she just hated religion because it always, uh, like, tore women down. And she listed all these circumstances. And then she said, and even the Bible blames uh Cuts down on Eve. And I just raised my hand, and of course, you know, you're, you're trying to be a witness, right? You're not trying to be a jerk and win an argument. So I just raised my hand, and I said, well, you know, the Bible never actually blames Eve. The first time, she did not have anything to say. She just kind of looked at me. I, I knew she'd never heard that before. And I quoted Romans 5. By one man, sin entered into the world. And there was a couple other times where uh, she, she might have said something. I'm like, well, you know. And then she'd look at the professor, and my professor, he's right. <laughs> and, and, I'm, and again, we're not trying to win arguments. 
we're not trying to push it back in their face. And then one time, I went up to her, and I was like, hey, you know, you, you have some pretty interesting views. I, I obviously, we're kind of on different, different uh, paths. What, what do you think about just after class sometime, just going up and um, just, just chatting, you know, about, I didn't say worldviews, but that's basically what it was. It's like, oh, yeah, that'd be cool. So we went up after class, and we talked for almost two hours. Well, I should say she talked for almost two hours because I was just kind of there to listen. And I put out a few things and just asked, and it was, she didn't really believe in much of anything. I still pray for her. After the conversation, we got up, and she said, you know, Andrew, I think you're the first Christian I've ever met that didn't just condemn me. I said, you know, you can come to my church anytime. You know, she, she was married to another woman by then. That was when Minnesota had just passed the law, and it was like that midnight she was out. And, you know, there's, there's hurting people, there's hungry people. And we can sit and we can think, you know, I want to be really intellectual, but I'm not trying to be that way. I want to know what this says so that I can be a light to the world. You guys have heard me talk about my friend Josh that I was able to talk to, and I won't rehash that story. I'm sorry, I feel like I'm going really long. But he's agnostic, and, and we started having Bible studies. I didn't want to teach him a Bible study. I mean, he was like a really smart dude. He'd already had a degree from Sweden. And I just was like, hey, uh, Josh, I'm starting a Bible study. If you want to come, that'd be cool. I'm expecting him to say no. And he's like, oh, yeah, that'd be cool. I love talking about intellectual things like that. I'm like, so the first time we met, we talked for three hours about the Bible. And this is not just... It's not like you just have to know everything about the Bible to talk to people. Sometimes you just have to believe that it's the Bible. And you can talk about it, and you can believe it, and you can, you can share. And one time, Brother Cole, we were talking about Job. And we're showing how God really showed his love to Job at the end. And it, it was a test. It was just all these things. And you could feel the love of God in the room. And he said, I, I've read the Bible, but I thought that story was about God hating a man. And we would go through these things. And the second one was two and a half hours. And then the third one was another two and a half. And finally I said, let's just start meeting every day before class on Thursdays. And I had to lose an hour of sleep. And so we started doing this, and in a passing five-minute thing, I talked about the Godhead, and I didn't say, I just, you know, I'm not a Trinitarian, I quoted a scripture. He's like, wow, I thought all Christians believed in the Trinity. I said, no, and I shared a couple things. Well, it was a week later, he comes in, and he's like, so, and remember, he's intellectual, right? So he's like, you would have loved this. We had a religious debate in class the other day, in this other class that he was in. I was like, oh, yeah, what's that about? He's like, well, these Trinitarians were trying to say that the book of Acts prove that there was a trinity because of the spirit I said oh yeah they do that sometimes and I said who was on the other side he said oh that was me I was telling them everything you taught me did I mention that he was agnostic which is the step right before being an atheist this is not anything I'm doing this was this was honestly me not wanting to do this but me stepping into a position to where God could use me to reach people that had a hatred even for the Bible. And I still pray for them. And God, I want you to move on, Lynn. God, even right now, I haven't talked to them in years. But God, I want you to touch Joshua. And one of the last times, 
sometime at the end of one of our Bible studies, he said, you know, Andrew, you know more about the Bible than even some of the Catholic priests that I talk to. He's like, you actually believe it and live it. You're the only Christian I've met that was like that. And I, of course, I'm not saying this to puff myself up, but it, and I just looked at him and I thought, well, you need to come to my church because there's a lot of us that believe and live this. So my challenge for us today is can we be a bridge in this gap? Our worldviews are in conflict with the spirit of this age. And I know I, I keep apologizing, it's 9 o'clock, but if we could just stand and if we could just devote our lives again to this Word of God, and if we can stand upon truth, you, you might just step into a situation where God uses an agnostic to witness to Trinitarians. You might just step into an opportunity to teach someone who, whose morality is so twisted and just so shapen by this world that God could use you to be a witness that there's more to this Christian life than what that agnostic pastor was trying to teach his denomination. There's more to this truth. There's more to this way than what the world is trying to get us to believe in. There's more to this way. This is the way called truth. This is the way that some people call crazy and some people call heresy. But this is something that we can stand upon. And this is something that Peter said, this is life. That you have the words of life, Jesus. Oh God, and wherever I am, I want to stand for truth. Wherever I am, I don't want to be afraid to stand for truth. I don't want to be intimidated by the spirit of the age. Even if they are so much smarter than me. Or even if it's some type of intimidation, God. I don't want to be fearful of those things. But God, I want to stand for you, Lord. I want to move in the Holy Ghost. I want to be moved to passion. I want my spirit to be stirred, oh God. When Paul was walking through and he saw all the evil and he saw all the paganism, it says that his spirit was stirred and he began to preach. Oh God, help us, Lord. Oh, yeah.